Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So if you can tell, I'm sure you can, I have a cold. Well, I've got actually COVID, um, which feels like a really horrible cold. And it went through my household like lightning speed. Can't even explain how fast it just hit one person, then the next, then the next. Um, so I haven't been feeling tip top and it's still a little yucky to talk. So I'm going to keep my intro to a minimum here and um, just talk about this timely, timely podcast that we are doing there's a hurricane bearing down on Florida right now. And um, I happened to interview Patricia Frost, who is um, the vice chair of the National Pediatric Disaster Coalition. It um, was such a great conversation and a follow-up to the podcast that I did a short while ago on climate change. And um, we did some disaster planning conversation then as well with Alex Guinness. If you haven't listened to that podcast yet, I would go back and listen to that one as well. Patricia Frost has so many letters after her name. She's so credentialed. Um, she's an RN, PHN, and a PNP um, with an MS. <laughs> so there you go. There's some alphabet soup. But the important thing to know is that she has over 35 years experience as a pediatric and neonatal critical care nurse. She's been a nurse educator, she's a nurse practitioner, and she's got 15 years of experience as the pre-hospital care coordinator in the emergency medical services in Contra Costa County. So the important part of this conversation was really to talk about what happens for kids with disabilities and special health care needs during a national or even a local disaster, whether that's a disaster because of climate change or not, not does not matter. So this can be fire, weather, um, any kind of, um, you know, pandemic like we just had, for example. And it's important that we talk about what happens for children, especially children with special healthcare needs and disabilities uh, to support disaster readiness. The National Pediatric Disaster Coalition has been working on this for a long time and really um, I came into this interview, I thought, familiar with this topic and having lived with Elizabeth for 17 years and being in New England, you know, I thought, well, we had done all that we could do for planning. And um, I worked on a project at Boston Children's Hospital um, for uh, providing and securing a medical home and what that means. And Part of that was disaster planning as well. But 
I definitely learned some things uh, in both talking with Alex and now in talking with Pat. The importance of planning is just tantamount. Um, you know, I'll say it again. I say it all the time on this podcast. I have never met a checklist I haven't loved. And it, it can be just the savior to, um, to have this checklist ready and to have your community of supporters on the ready as well. So for me, that meant going to my local fire station and working with the um, fire chief and the paramedics there to have them be prepared for anything that Elizabeth might need. We designated the fire station as our emergency evacuation place to go to because if we didn't have power, they would have power. And Elizabeth, of course, um, was on life-sustaining um, treatments that required power. So that would be, you know, for feeding tube, oxygen at some points in our lives, and um, suctioning, and also, you know, the ability to monitor her, um, so many things. So we, you know, we put a plan together, and I encourage you to do that as well. Um, it's not just doing this emergency planning at home, but you also want to have this as part of your plan at school. And I'm not sure if our audience is familiar with the concept of an individualized health plan. That IHP can be part of your IEP. So if your kiddo has any special healthcare needs or any special needs because of their disability regarding evacuation, regarding medications, regarding any kind of a disaster, then you definitely can get that into your IEP um, or you can develop a full IHP to go along with that. I'm thinking I'm going to do a podcast on IHPs just so that we can talk about them and make sure that I kind of close the loop on this circle. As always, please let me know if you have any questions or concerns or uh, comments on this podcast or any other podcast. And if there are topics that you would love to hear us talk about, I will seek out an expert and we will bring them to the show. If you would like to be on this podcast to share your story, share your journey, or share some technical expertise that you have, I would love to hear from you. If you just go to specialneedscompanies.com and click on our podcast tab, there's a form there that you can fill out to um, suggest you know, a topic or to suggest yourself to come on the show. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate how amazing the audience has been for this podcast. And I am really looking forward to the next couple of months of shows. I've got some great things booked for you guys. So here we go. This is my third interview in a series of a topic that has really hit home for me near and dear to my heart. And today we have Pat Frost, Patricia Frost, and she's from the National Pediatric Disaster Coalition to talk about disaster preparedness for children and even adults with disabilities. 
So I started this journey by talking with Alex Guinness. I hope you'll check out that podcast. He talked about climate change and people with disabilities. And we did touch on disasters and disaster preparedness and what happens when you have brownouts and things like that. And then I spoke with Michelle Francis, who um, is a money manager, a planner. But, you know, we talked about some strategies. She, her daughter, if you remember, is rare, has a rare disease. And we talked about the formula shortage and being prepared with extra formula, extra medication and, you know, a kind of preparedness kit. It was a fascinating situation, fascinating topic. But now I want to dig a little deeper with Pat and talk about disaster readiness. And I, I have to say that this was something that just struck such fear in me when my daughter was growing up. My Elizabeth was dependent on electricity for life-sustaining treatment and care. And um, she was a G-tube user. She could not get her nutrition any other way. We didn't get formula off the shelf. Um, there were so many things, so many medications, just, you know, we thought a lot about it and we did some disaster preparedness living in New England when you are prone to have blizzards and things get shut down and you can't get to the store. You know, we did our disaster preparedness, but I was lucky enough to have a core group of nurses who came to my home who helped me with this. I do not think I could have managed this on my own if I did not have some support of an organization like yours and then the local groups. One of the other things I want to mention before I let Pat jump in here is that we were given some fantastic advice when Elizabeth was little, and that was to connect with our local fire department and first responders. So we went and we did a training on Elizabeth and we gave them a list and updated it of her current medications. And they actually had her in their speed dial so that when somebody called from our house, they knew that there was a person with you know, medical fragility there and that there were going to be some extra needs. And that really shortcutted a lot of things for us. And I would have never known to do that if it wasn't for my local children's hospital who had suggested that we do that. So that was one of the things that really helped us get ready. So now I want Pat to jump into the conversation. Welcome and thank you for being here, Pat. Well, Annette, thank you so much for having me. And um, this is such an important topic. Your entry was like perfect in terms of encapsulating all the complexities and the logistics that um, families with children who have complex medical needs or even just um, chronic medical needs and have regular medication or a special formula or, or um, some other routine um, access of care that could get disrupted if, um, you know, in disaster. And there's such a, um, there's such a burden placed on families to somehow magically know how to solve all those problems. Yes. And um, there are not systems in place um, that are um, 
there are evolving systems in place, but they're not systems in place everywhere unless, you know, families get connected. And, um, you know, my background has been, uh, uh, you know, really varied. I, you know, been pediatric nurse and nurse practitioner and transitioned to county um, emergency services and really have had a wealth of um, experience with uh populations that are underserved as well as um, families with um, children with disabilities and medical needs, um, the whole spectrum uh, as far as that's concerned. And, you know, I think I keep on thinking about when I was a NICU nurse um, in the newborn ICU. And then, you know, you have these little preemies that you discharge home. Yeah. And, you know, what you tell, you know, the families, they're taught how to diaper and to give the medicines and stuff, but nothing, nothing is, is given to help them prepare for what, if you can't get the medicines, what if the power goes off, you know, and you have a technology dependent child, um, you know, anything in terms of basic disaster. And so our organization, the National Pediatric Disaster Coalition, we're focused on children and advocating for children inclusiveness in disaster. And that means all children, including this subpopulation of uh, children with uh, disabilities and medical needs um, that are so vulnerable, so, so vulnerable um, and can be disrupted their lives can be disrupted, you know, completely, um, uh, very, very easily, because we don't have good systems in place in the healthcare system to be able to meet, even in blue sky days, which we yeah. say disaster, you know, it, when everything's going okay, they live, you know, paycheck to paycheck, many of them, they, they don't have the benefit of being able to get 30 or 60 days worth of medications. Well, um, sure. Yeah, the insurance I, I, company won't let you do that. But we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And, and, and those are the system issues that um, actually have uh, the pandemic has really shined a light on and organizations like the, um, you know, health and human services, um, uh, you know, and maternal child um, uh, uh, funding and grant funding and uh, assistant secretary for preparedness and response. There's, there's a number of groups that are um, putting out a lot of funding to help really create more of a local and regional system to help mm-hmm. address these issues for children, but also pay special attention to the children who are most vulnerable. Which is so amazing to me. But first of all, whoop, whoop for our nurses, because let me tell you, our life would not have been anything close to as wonderful as it was if we did not have our nurses for 17 years taking care of Elizabeth, I tell you. That was uh, such a blessing for us. I and mean, we never had enough hours and support, but the support we did have was, was fantastic. I also, my Elizabeth was a 29 pound, uh, 29 week, two pound preemie. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we started right from the get go into this world. Uh, no little baby steps for us. So I'm surprised though that it took the pandemic for us to kind of learn our lesson or to even really start thinking about this because we had Katrina, we had California wildfires, you know, we've got all of these um, 
natural disasters that are happening around us year after year and time after time. And we look at what's happened in Puerto Rico over and over again, too. So why is it now that we're finally waking up and saying, oh, we really have to pay attention to this? You know, um, that's an excellent question. And I think there's a number of things that are coming together. The um, groups that have been advocating for disaster preparedness for children have been doing this since 2008. And it's just been what I would call headbanging work in order <laughs> to get this on the radar as far as that's concerned. Um, I think um, because of the pandemic and the fact that it disrupted schools and schools were so essential to the livelihood and people being able to work. And when you took them, you know, closed the schools as part of it, it just raised the bar in terms of, oh, we should have probably planned for this and we have never planned for this much less figured out how to you know address you know all the subpopulations especially you know the children who are you know on um, individualized education plans in the schools i mean the schools are like essential services for the disability community for um, in children and families and all of those types of things. I mean, I, I, I do think that that made a difference um, and it seemed to create some critical mass in terms of making the funding. The other thing over the last probably 10 years, there's been an accumulated um, uh, um, body of research uh, that basically shows the evidence mm -hmm. that, you know, the kids are losing out big time and especially children with um, complex needs as far as that's concerned. Um, and so those things kind of all coming together, um, you know, have made a huge difference in terms of raising the bar and leveling the playing field for uh, all children um, to be included in disaster preparedness. And, and just recently, the, um, uh, uh, the Department of Homeland Security basically gave FEMA a mandate for them to include children in all of their planning. And, it, it, awesome. you know, this, it, it shouldn't have taken this long, you know, because there's there's just a huge body of work in, uh, uh, that supports this. But the fact that we're all coming together and collaborating um, in this time of climate change and disasters and mass casualties and, you know, active shooters and all of those things. And it's in our face kind of every single day. Right. It, it you know, you can't ignore it anymore. You just can't ignore it. Wow. And there's so much to talk about. So um, first and foremost, check out in the show notes, the coalition's website. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's a lot of information there. Don't go on overload. I know it can be overwhelming, but this is another one of those things where you just start a little bit at a time and start developing a plan. And then you work on it every year and make it a little bit better and a little bit more comprehensive. Uh, you just don't have to do this, you know, all at once. Yeah, so, small bites. We believe in small bites. <laughs> exactly. So let's start, you know, 
talking about some of the tips that you have in how to start developing a plan and what things to look for and include. And then we can dig into each one of those, like the medication situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, First of all, uh, the the work that uh, we that I have been involved in has been associated with the Pediatric Disaster Centers of Excellence that were found funded by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, and um, our education work group basically did a needs assessment and found that you know there were some gaps in terms of education and training materials for families with, um, you know, uh, children with disabilities or complex medical needs. And, right. and the information that was out there was actually very good, but it was all spread over all over the place. It was yeah. all spread all over the place. So what we did with, um, uh, you know, representatives from uh, families and advisory uh, groups through the EMS for Children's program, which is a national program that um, has been in place since uh, 2000. Um, and I think two th- 2000, in fact, 1990, 2000, um, is that basically we decided to try and pull all that lessons learned and little tips together into Mm -hmm. kind of a little toolkit. And what we did is we um, created videos um, in multiple languages, including American Sign Language, um, that were um, with with and without narration, um, uh, and uh, a series of, um, or a suite of infographics, infographics that people could just print out on a plain piece of paper and hand it to them as part of a clinic visit or, you know, or, you know, they could download, you don't have to have, you know, it, it has nice colors in it, but but the information doesn't need to be colored, you know, it, it's there. And so we um, uh, talked about, you know, uh, just basic information about disasters um, and communication and uh, sheltering in place and when to evacuate. And each infographic has its uh, section. And then the videos basically give you a little overview of all Mm -hmm. of those things. And then we paired it with a, a, a very short video, about three and a half minutes for providers. And this was directed at emergency managers, nurses, physicians, anybody who is in a role of, you know, EMS people, anyone who is in a role of providing services in disasters or is involved in disaster preparedness activities and about what they needed to know about children and, and their families, you know, who have these special medical needs and to increase their awareness. And we put together a teaching checklist so that, you know, what we're working with is right now is the American Academy of Pediatrics to actually um, make this part of anticipatory guidance or, you know, um, primary prevention, injury prevention. Does that, wouldn't that be nice? Disaster preparedness as injury prevention. Yes. Wouldn't that, wouldn't, that be, yes. wouldn't that be cool? So I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Picture this visual, Pat, you know, yeah. a, um, a brownout and you've got a kiddo on a ventilator. And now all of a sudden you don't ha- and you don't have a generator. 
<laughs> because not everybody can afford a generator or not everybody lives in their own home to yeah. get a generator in place. So what are you doing? Yeah, you're, exactly. you're bagging your kid by hand. How many hours can you do that? You know, exactly. I mean, that is what we are looking at. Or you have to send your kid off to the hospital. And we all know that kids do better in the community at home than they do in hospitals. So we need to stay out of the hospital unless we absolutely a thousand percent need to be there. Yeah. There was a, there was a, uh, well, anyway, I digress. I could talk for hours on this, but let me probably let the professional continue to talk. So Pat, in thinking about different areas of preparedness, can we talk a little bit about some basic tips for families about how to get ready? Yeah, I think basically what we want them to be able to do is, you know, there are, there are, uh, use the materials to give them some guidance around, um, you know, putting together a, you know, plan, what do you need to do, mm-hmm. you know, as far as that's concerned. And, um, and, uh, you know, having a go kit, you know, what should you what should you include in your go kit? And also being able to have a discussion with your primary care provider, or um, your fire department, or, you know, your EMS people, mm-hmm. and that type of thing, if you are um, going to need, div- if you're going to need help to evacuate and evacuating early versus not. And the reason, you know, we, we think of these things, and it's power is like the big deal right now, you know, um, yeah. uh, is that in 2021, you know, during the Texas winter ice storm, what happened was that Texas Children's, which is a huge pediatric regional center and stuff, was completely caught by surprise when they had a surge of, you know, these children with special, you know, um, uh, you special know, health care needs. needs, special yeah. health care needs or special medical needs and stuff who were coming to them because they had no power and no water and no heat. And right. they, and so what we find is that even, you know, in high level academic centers that serve these children routinely, they don't necessarily are, they are not necessarily aware that these families see these places as safe harbors. That's right. That's right. And I and and frankly, they have a responsibility to the families to help them get disaster prepared by mm-hmm. the information sharing, helping them connect to resources, um, you know, um, and and those uh, um, types of uh, things connecting with their EMS and their fire department, um, you know, all of those kinds of tips make a difference. Um, What we do know about these families is that um, they, you know, I mean, you, you don't, you learn this over time, right? Taking care of your own child, depending on how much. And if, you know, and if disaster preparedness was easy, you know, uh, we'd all be already disaster. I would just go down to the store, have these problems, just buy my little kit, and then I'll put it in the closet, you know, but we can't do that, because we're all on different medications and different treatment plans. And, 
you know, we have different needs and, and the threats are different depending on what part of the, the country you live in. Well, exactly. So, and, and so, you know, um, so when we were talking about in our infographic, we were talking about sheltering in place, you know, there's a lot of different reasons you shelter in place. You know, mm-hmm. certainly we've had the experience with pandemic, but there's also wildfires. There's yeah. also civil unrest, yeah. you know, all of these active shooters, you know, all of these things involve, you know, uh, sheltering in place and, um, and having, you know, communication and being signed in signing up for those alerts in your community are yeah. absolutely essential. That I, I would say, I would say the biggest challenge is that we need to get people, everyone, both providers and the families and the children all situationally prepared and and that communication network so they can get those early alerts about, okay, this fire is coming, you need to evacuate, you know, you need to start putting things together. And um, because we know that tragedy strikes when people cannot get out. What a great tip. That's awesome. Just as a first step, making sure that you are receiving the information and communication that you, you need so that you know what's going on around you. So I know that that's not as much of a problem for kids and their families because parents are not reluctant to self-identify as mm-hmm. having somebody in their house with needs, but it can be a little bit more of a challenge with adults. So when you have adults with disabilities living in the community, we don't always know where they are. So they're not going to go down to their local fire station like I did, you know, and self-identify. Here's Elizabeth. These are her needs. If you get a call from our house, it's truly a serious emergency. I'm running. (laughs) She stopped breathing. She has seizures. You know, we we are in the hospital 10 times a year. So yeah, um, you know, with an adult who might be reluctant, I think we have our work cut out for us as well. Well, and also I think, you know, there are I mean, there are family units. If you think of your disabilities the way FEMA thinks of it in terms of access and functional needs, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was on a um, webinar recently um, in the disability community, and one of the speakers just was incredibly, you know, passionate and and basically said, you know, we come into the world with access and functional needs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even if you have a healthy baby, you have access and functional needs for that child, you know, uh-huh. for a significant a portion of their years. Okay. And uh-huh. then, and then, you know, if they do have any healthcare needs, there's complexity and those things continue and there's variation in terms of, you know, how many of those types of kids and the, you know, what their particular needs are and how they get served in the community. Um, And then, you know, as you age, um, you know, their, their parents may have access and functional needs too, or their Mm -hmm. grandparents or, you know, their caretakers or their teachers or, you know, all of those things is, you know, so this is access and functional needs is, is a very, you know, fluid, 
continuum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you think of, uh, you know, what is needed as far as that's concerned. Um, I think um, the other tip that I would get is that when um, families are doing their um, individual education plan, that they um, all that they start the discussion about an individual emergency plan. Right now, an individual education plan, there are it, states vary in terms of including an individual emergency plan, but every parent who has a child who has an individual education plan can include that information in, oh, in terms thanks. of getting, helping to get to know their child, you know, what's their emergency plan, who to call, you know, and what to do in that situation. And also that starts a dialogue with the school in terms of really being clear about what the uh, school will do and will not do, or is maybe not capable of doing. Because there's a lot of assumptions being made when you hand your child off to the school setting mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of how are they going to evacuate my child if they're in That's a right. Evacuation is a key one, whether it's an active shooter or a fire. Well, yeah. and some and some uh, and some of their policies may include, you know, staging the children in a particular area for first responders to to carry out. And they may not, they may have policies that say, well, the teachers aren't going to carry the kids out. So, I mean, we really have a lot of work to do to make sure we're communicating what services and what help will be provided in that situation and not make assumptions because, you know, that that will lead to unintended consequences. And, and, and this is what we hear about, you know, um, in, um, uh, in all of in in all of these circumstances, we know that if you don't, you know, get the message to evacuate, you won't, you know, know how to ev evacuate, and maybe the routes of evacuation. Those things have to be pre-planned. Are you going yeah. to you, nine one one? Isn't going to necessarily be available to you at all, right? So you know, I mean. Who are your neighbors? I mean, one of the, yes. you know, Vance Taylor, who is just an amazing advocate and chief of the, um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, disabilities um, section for um, Cal OES, um, California Office of Emergency Services, and basically says over and over again, you need to have at least five people five people, neighbors and stuff to be able to come and check on you if there's something going on. So it's about building out that community. And when we discharge these children from the hospital early on, whatever their you know, disability or their need is and stuff, wouldn't it be great if we start the dialogue? We can't overload them, but start the dialogue about, okay, this is, you know, this is a disaster prone area. Every yeah. place is a disaster prone area now here in the United States. Every place. The yes. pandemic has taught us that. Yes. So, you know, this is what you might need to think about. 
and I'm going to help you work with the durable medical equipment people and, mm -hmm. you know, the um, insurance companies and to write those authorizations and that for medical need in order to get those backup things there. And, um, you know, but at the end of the day, it's all of it, to make that all work, to have all those logistics play together. Oh, you know, you really need to have the family, you know, dialed in and being able to do that. And it's a lot to ask. It's yeah. a lot to ask. So any place that we can provide not only information, but help build connections mm. between people and services and advocacy groups, um, you know, yeah. that they don't feel alone, that they're not doing this all by themselves is so, well, so important. Let me throw a couple things at you before we run out of time here, because oh, so many questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw something out to you and I want you to give me a quick response. Okay. Evacuation routes, accessible, not accessible. Shoot thoughts. I, I think you need to know where you stand. I think in family, in, in communities, it's going to vary tremendously. So you have to um, uh, have a dialogue or at least uh, some sort of communication with, um, I think your fire departments are, are an amazing resource in terms mm -hmm. of accessibility and also knowing the threats as well as your Office of Emergency Services. And right. pretty much Office of Emergency Services always has you know, um, contact with the disability group because it's such a positive, you know, part of their mandate in terms of their jurisdictional planning that, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, they have to have an answer for you, you know, as far cool. as that's concerned. All right. Go bags. What should be in them? Go bags and stuff. I mean, you know, whether you are able to, you're going to need at least in a perfect world, you'd need probably about two or three weeks, you know, of, of materials as far as that's concerned, but certainly medications, your money, your insurance cards, you know, um, information about your child's um, medical condition, um, as well as any durable medical equipment, batteries, you know, whatever you do to need to take care of your child at home, if you had to quickly get out of the way and, you know, go someplace else, you're going to need to be able to have all those things because they're not going to be in a shelter for you and they're right. not, not straight off. And um, yeah, you, you need to have a plan of where to go. Okay. So um, sheltering in place, what do you need? Uh, for sheltering in place, I think you need to, uh, first of all, have, um, you know, uh, sign up for um, notices and alerts uh, in your local community that there is a sheltering in place. You can do that with Nixol and, and other types of communication that are either text message to let you know that there's a threat. Okay, and what the threat is. And if you're sheltering in place because there's been a chemical release because you live close to refineries or, 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 or you know, or if you're sheltering in place because there's wildfire smoke, even if the fire is a long, long way, you need to be able to know, um, you know, basically you have to shut your windows, you, you may need to have, um, you know, an N95 mask, you won't be going outside. Um, right. 
um, you know, what to do with air conditioning if you have it, or, you know, will that make it worse or better in your situation? Um, also, um, the community may end up having uh, opening up uh, not really shelters, but but basically locations where people can come where it is fresh air. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. more fresh air, and to be able to go there in order to um, help yourself or be prepared to move out of the area if it's affecting you know your child's health or your health, right. and 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 still evacuate. You, it, that still may be the best oh. thing for you to do. No easy feat for most of us. No. Okay. Last thing. What is the first step in the action plan besides going to your website? What is your best first step? I think the best first step is really getting connected with your fire department and your EMS um, providers. They can, you know, actually put information in the dispatch about your child. So, you know, um, those providers have a heads up uh, and also provide you information. I even gave them a little picture. Uh, they they had her picture. We you know we only had a few ambulances that were local, and they had her picture up there. It helps. It really helps. It, it does. And there's a new program coming out of Indiana that is called the Stars Program that is actually cr- trying to create systems in place between the regional centers and the EMS agencies for for that to take care of a whole population of children in their mm-hmm. jurisdiction. So it, you know whether you do it on a one-to-one or you do it as part of a system, if those services are provided for you, it's a great way to go. Awesome. Okay, Pat, as usual, I'm way out of time, but is there anything that I did not ask you that we should really make sure we talk about today before we sign off? Well, I think, you know, there is plenty of information out there and available for um, communities to use. The biggest challenge is getting this information out to people and actually, you know, saying it's okay to put it on your website. It's okay to to share it with, you know, your community and to Mm -hmm. actually use the information that is there. we, We throw things on the wall and expect them to stick. In, um, in terms of education and preparedness. But what it really takes is engagement. And um, that means it's a conversation. Yeah. I think it's more about outreach and conversation than anything else. And that warm handoff of um, saying, we care about you and we want you to have this information. Tell me where, where you ha- would have trouble with um, uh, this preparedness guidance. And, you know, let me see if I can point you in the right direction or give you some additional help. I love it. That is great. You have been the most awesome guest. Thank you so much. (laughs) Such an important topic. So important. And even just doing a little bit is going to, you know, get you to that next point and prevent potentially some disastrous thing from happening to you and your family. So thank you so much for being on the show, Pat. Well, thank you. Thank you, Annette. And, um, you know, I really encourage people to visit our website. We do have a listserv, but, you know, if if you don't want emails and stuff like that, you can follow us on social media. Please join us on Twitter. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. We will have all of that, the Twitter and the other social media contacts and the website on our show notes. And thank you so much. And as always, folks, if you have any questions or comments about this topic or this show, I welcome them. Please get in touch, direct message me or um, go ahead and send a note through our Instagram page. I would love to know what you think about all of this and whether you feel like you're ready to tackle this as a subject. So thanks again, Pat, and have a great night. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.